Serb Alpern, the 2-1 of Brass. I'm Carson Sestouli. This is Fangraphs Audio. My guest on this edition of Fangraphs Audio, making his weekly appearance, is our managing editor, Dave Cameron. In what follows, we look at the achievement that has been Bryce Harper's first 100 plate appearances in the major leagues and what it has in common with someone named Oyster and someone else named Buttercup. Moving on, we look at the recent extension the Baltimore Orioles gave to Adam Jones, what sort of player Adam Jones might be in the future, and where in the AL East the Orioles might be at the end of the year. Also in this edition of the podcast, we look at three teams that not even two months into the season are already almost entirely removed from playoff contention. A sad, sad tale that, especially if one of those teams is yours. It is, however, still Fangraphs Audio. It is, in this case, featuring Dave Cameron... And it begins right now. Um, there's actually there's quite a bit that happened since the last time we talked. Um, yeah. We could sort of I guess we could we could go in reverse chronological order, but you That's you my favorite kind of order. Yeah, but you wrote. I think this is your second official uh, post that that is uh, that's sort of mainly fawning over Bryce Harper. Uh, I think I've written more than two, right? I wrote one uh, a couple of years ago that was called like Bryce Harper best prospect ever, and that was the one that led to the we're all going to go dateless thing. I think. Okay, right, that, and that was a couple of years ago. You definitely did one last year that was sort of uh, a status update on his minor league, on his uh, minor league performance. Right. So perhaps that, actually that might that might have been it. Okay. So the, right, that might that might have been the first and the first of the fawning posts, and this would be like the to be continued. Right, and he hasn't. Um, I guess the reasons for praise have not decreased at all. In fact, perhaps they've increased. Yeah, I think what Bryce Harper is doing is, uh, I mean, you know, like he's a, he's really good. <laughs> I mean, I love Mike Trout, and I think Mike Trout is fantastic, but the. Bryce Harper or Mike Trout questions are starting to become a little bit silly in regards to how good Harper is. I mean, I think Mike Trout is going to be one of the best players in baseball, but he's not Bryce Harper. So what's what's setting them apart then? And I guess what's setting apart, because it, the way that you you talk about Harper in your post today seems that he's not he's not just like a normal, very excellent major league talent, it seems to be what you're suggesting. That's basically it, yes. I think Bryce Harper is, uh, you know, he's established himself as kind of talent that has the ability to end up as an inner circle Hall of Famer. And, uh, unless, you know, barring some kind of off-field issue, I mean, there's always the Josh Hamilton, Rick Ann Keel career path. Uh, we're not, you know, I'm not saying this guy belongs in Cooperstown right now, but I think what he's done, uh, to date suggests to us that it will be an upset if he doesn't finish with a Hall of Fame resume, assuming health and uh, drugs and all those off-the-field issues don't derail his career. Right, and then whatever derailed, um, I mean, this, this was just an aside, though, but I noticed, uh, because one of the players whose names you invoked was Cesar Cedeno. Right. And uh, I'll be honest, that's that's one of those names that, um, you know, probably like Tony Canigliero for anyone outside of the Boston market, is definitely a name I'd heard. Looking over Cesar Cedeno's like the first ten or eleven years of his career, though, I was shocked at how good they were he was. Amazing. Yeah, he was like he was Andrew Jones essentially uh, for the 1970s. I mean, he was a uh, fantastic defensive outfielder who hit like crazy, and uh, I mean, he was a, the absolute five-tool player. And 
Uh, Cedeno also had a style of play uh, that caused him, you know, a decent amount of physical harm and injuries. And then, you know, towards the end of the career, there was the uh, issue where he accidentally killed his girlfriend, which suggests that, you know, perhaps there might have been other off-field issues before the accidental death came into play. Right, yeah. Uh, so, you, you know, with Cedeno, there are certainly some extenuating circumstances. And when you look at his career basically falling apart after age 30, you think like, eh, there were probably some non-baseball reasons for this. Right. Yeah. Now, the style of play is interesting when we talk about Harper. We could uh, we'll, we'll mention some of the the uh, well, two things. We'll mention some of the sort of markers of his talent momentarily. Um, of course, those are all present in the piece that you wrote. Style of play is interesting. Uh, it's a, I, at least I think it's part of the discussion when you when you talk about Harper. Um, for example, he, he's sort of made a um, it's become a trademark of his of him already of his style of play already that he uh, is very aggressive out of the box when he's running to the point where he's running full speed even on like a normal single um, uh, a couple steps past first base. Yeah, I mean, like, I think one of the interesting things about Harper is this kind of talent, usually the issue is not over-hustle. Like, you know, with uh, even Andrew Jones was not at this level of prospect, but he was pretty phenomenal back in his day and came up at age 19 and uh, you know, was a, a pretty special prospect. But the issue with uh, Jones has always been, you know, the opposite <laughs> on the work ethic spectrum. Harper is, uh, you know, perhaps the premier uh, physical talent we've seen in a really long time, and he plays like a guy who's five foot four and is trying to scrape by and have a career in baseball because he lacks physical tools. Right, and uh, I mean, I would say if 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 he's a, an injury risk, or I would say that he might at some level be a victim of his own uh, hustle uh, or his own well, I, I mean, I, want to. I think there's no doubt that he's not going to be able to keep this style of play up for 20 years. Right. At it's some point. sort of thing a 19-year-old person can do. Yeah. This, this is an unsus- uh, unsustainable level of hustle. Right. Okay, yeah. Um, <laughs> now, listen, you, you're, you're making note, especially uh, with regard to sort of league and, league and park-adjusted numbers, uh, Harper is currently carrying a, a WRC plus, which is kind of our best way of measuring that, of 138, which means he's yeah. essentially 38 uh, percent better uh, offensively um, than league average. Um, yeah. Now, we, you also invoke the name Mike Trout, and I think it's an important discussion. Mike Trout currently has, and you know I'm a huge uh, uh, Mike Trout supporter. Yes. Um, he's a 20-year-old, so he's about a year older in terms of uh, age. It's his age 20 season. He has a 146 WRC+. Plus. Correct. And we should mention you're in, you are currently in a spaceship of some sort, right? <laughs> <laughs> yes. Uh, sorry for the beeping. That will yeah, hopefully yeah. not be a repetitive thing. Yeah, you are currently, right. We're, this is, it's, a, uh, it's a baseball nerd capsule that you live in uh, so that you can be preserved forever. Um, well, <laughs> well, more on that later at the end of the show. Uh, but Trout, per our numbers, um, has already been worth 1.7 wins, whereas yeah. Harper, um, in, a, in almost exactly the same number of plate appearances, has, o- has only been worth 0. 0.6. Yeah. Um, now, to some degree, that reveals some of the differences between them because Trout is always probably going to play – um, a notch above Harper on the defensive spectrum. Correct. Um, but still, even given this, what makes you think that it's it's Harper and not Trout who is going to have this sort of 
you know, this sort of season that, um, or not season, but sort of career, or that this foretells of a career of uh, of these heights? So I think what we can see throughout baseball history is that performance in the major leagues is some kind of combination of talent and experience. And as a player gets more experience and sees more breaking balls, uh, especially, you know, good off-speed pitches, they begin to adjust, they stop swinging at them so often, uh, their performance improves to the point where, you know, the physical prime and then their level of experience kind of come together at around 26, 27, and that's when the player is really at his best. With Trout, uh, yes, he's only a year older than, than Bryce Harper, but he's significantly more experienced in professional baseball. Uh, Trout has, you know, spent a decent amount of time in AAA, which is, you know, just a notch below major league pitching. It's, it's obviously not as good, but it's, a you know, not a bad level of pitching to learn against. Uh, spent significantly more time in the high minors. He spent a decent chunk of last year in the major leagues. Even when he wasn't playing, he was at least seeing major league pitching. Um, so Trout's experience level, I think, is, uh, having some kind of an impact on his performance level, whereas Harper, I think what we're seeing right now is no experience, raw physical ability, and still performing at a ridiculously good level. Not just, and this isn't just you know his batting line is being driven by a 450 batter or something. He's drawing walks and he's not striking out and he's hitting for power uh, at age 19. And the list of people who can do that just based on their physical skills is so short because this is really an extraordinary gift where. With experience, uh, Harper's performance will improve. What we're seeing now is essentially just his physical talents taking over, where Trout is some combination of physical talents and some experience that are helping him. And that experience, I think, is less uh, projectable growth-wise than a guy who can do this with just his physical gifts. And so I think that's why when we look at it and we say, look, this is what Trout can do when he's never seen major league curveballs. He's barely seen double-A curveballs, uh, you know, this is an extraordinary talent and kind of touches on a guy who has physical gifts that just don't exist in very many human beings. Now, what separates Harper, and I'm guessing there is a difference, but it, what separates Harper from players that we've seen in the past who have demonstrated what, what we'll typically call old player skills at a younger age? Like, uh, for example, Ben Grieve um, was rather successful in the, uh, the high minors and then um, in his first couple years in the majors, and also another player like Jeremy Hermida, um, who was who was successful early on in his career and demonstrated a good batting eye. And as you mentioned, Harper and, and I actually, I'll be honest, I hadn't uh, totally realized this. He's walking in almost 12% of plate appearances and only striking out in less than 16%. And, and that sort of split is uh, uncommon for most major leaguers. Uh, let alone you know 19-year-old ones. But what, so, what's the distinction between Harper and players like like Grieve and Hermida who've showed those skills at a young age? Yeah, so I think like there's a significantly different approach. So Harper does not go up in the plate looking to walk. I think if you've seen him uh, uh, play in the first month of his major league performance, he's up there swinging the bat. Hermida and Grieve were both much more selective hitters, kind of in that John Olerud mode, where they went up there kind of in full-on take mode, and they were only going to swing if you force them to. And so, you know, they wanted to get to a 3-0, 3-1 count, sit on a fastball, and, you know, try and do their damage that way, in part because they couldn't hit good, good breaking balls nearly as well as a guy like, uh, you know, Harper can. And so they are, their best uh, use of skills was to get into a hitter's count, uh, be able to sit on one particular pitch in one particular location and swing the bat really hard. Harper doesn't have to do that. Harper can hit nearly any pitch in any location, and not to the degree of Vladimir Guerrero or Nomar Garcia Parra or, you know, one of those guys, 
but he's got fantastic plate control or back control, covers the whole plate and hits for power. And so, you know, you throw him a, an OO slider, he can hit that. And you throw him a, you know, a one-two curveball, he can hit that. And so, I think what we're seeing is a, is a guy in Harper who can hit any pitch in any count and hit it with authority. Whereas a guy like a Hermida or a Grieve or some of these guys who've had, uh, you know, high walk rates when they came up, uh, their power was basically predicated on getting into fastball counts and then swinging really hard when they saw one. Okay, so what will be required now, um, now that you've written two uh, fawning reports on Harper's talent, uh, especially relative to his age, what, what will be required for you to write a third, and when when would it happen? Uh, yeah, it's a good question. I mean, I you know, I guess I don't plan on this being an annual thing, but if Bryce Harper, I mean, right, right now, like, what Harper was doing in the South Atlantic League last year was not as historically unique as what he's doing right now, but it was pretty darn rare. Uh, what Harper is doing in the major leagues right now, you know, the kind of the post is we haven't really seen someone sustain this uh, over a long period of time since the Great Depression. Uh, so, you know, if Harper keeps doing things that no one has done for 70 or 80 years, uh, I think it justifies an annual column. So if next year he has an age 20 season that is, you know, up there with the level of what Alex Rodriguez did in his age 20 season, uh, it'll be time to bust out another Bryce Harper is good post. Yeah. Now, it, uh, it should be mentioned that um – that to compare, that to define comparables to Harper in terms of 19-year-olds um, with this sort of offensive output, you have to uh, you end up with with a list of people um, whose first names include Oyster, Cap, and Buttercup. That's the sort yeah. of that's the age we're talking about when people were called Oyster and Buttercup uh, as proper first names. My my favorite part of that whole post this morning is discovering that two of the three guys, well, really the two guys who were ahead of him, no lots tied with him, but the two guys ahead of him on the list in WRC Plus for age 19 were alive when Lincoln was assassinated. Yeah. Like, that really kind of puts into context just how long ago we were talking about. Yeah, that's that's a while ago. And one imagines that the uh, distribution of talent was probably different then. Right. I mean, we were, at, when they, when Oyster and, uh, uh, whatever the other guy's name was, uh, Fred Carroll, I believe. Right, yeah. Whenever they were playing, uh, this was like five to ten years after the invention of the glove. <laughs> like, I think the game has changed significantly since then. And I think actually before the invention of toilet paper. Uh, I, think uh, I am I'm not an expert on toilet paper history, but I, so I will defer to you, Mr. Sistuli. Yeah, well, I just remember that, uh, I remember reading at one point uh, when Strom Thurmond died, uh, a list of things that had been invented during his lifetime. And I do believe toilet paper was one of them, uh, in its in its present form. It's uh, people uh, always had ways to uh, to clean up after themselves, but uh, less convenient than toilet paper as we know it. I think this might be the worst segment in Fangraphs history. It's uh, it, sh- it it rivals it. It rivals it. Yeah. Now listen, um, we're talking in Bryce Harper about a player whose physical talents really seem to be um, contributing directly um, to. P- to excellent performance at a young age. Um, a player, and this is what we call a super segue, a super segue, uh, Dave Cameron, a player whose physical talents uh, appeared to be um, ahead of his performance until this year uh, was Adam Jones. Um, Adam Jones is, 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 has been known as uh, having, again, great physical talents, but maybe not necessarily before the season, really having found a way of translating them to the sort of performances we might have expected. He's already essentially matched um, his his war numbers from each of the last two seasons uh, so far this season through about a third of the plate appearances. The, uh, the Orioles 
um, I guess over the weekend um, or at the end of last week, they they locked him up uh, to a uh, an eighty-five million dollar contract for six years. First question: What is Adam Jones doing differently? Because I could, I look at his plate discipline numbers and they're almost precisely the same. What's he doing differently, and is it sustainable? Well, he's hitting the ball further, and so I mean, I think you know the obvious change in his performance is homer to fly ball rate. I think he's in the mid-20s right now, which is Ryan Howard territory. Uh, he's been in the mid-teens before, which is a little more normal for you know someone who's skinny. Uh, so I don't, certainly don't think we should expect Adam Jones to continue hitting home runs uh, at the rate that he's hitting them. Uh, I don't think Adam Jones' current performance level is sustainable right now. I mean, maybe eventually he'll uh, turn into the kind of player who can you know hit this many home runs on a regular basis. But I don't think right now this is what Adam Jones is. Uh, but I do think that that's you know, kind of the argument that broke out after the the contract was, you know, oh man, they're paying Adam Jones this big money for an unsustainable performance. But to me, that's not at all what they're doing. They're paying a guy who's having an unsustainable performance at a level that will not require him to sustain that performance in order to be worth the contract. So, you know, I understand that Adam Jones is not going to keep hitting this well, but he doesn't have to in order to be worth the deal. Because the deal is what 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 is typically that that sort of money um, and the precise numbers are escaping me momentarily, uh, but what is that type of money generally buying? So basically, you're looking at fourteen or fifteen million a season, uh, which you know at the current price of wins in the free agent market is about a three win player. Adam Jones is absolutely a three win player. Like I mean, you know, he's been with three wins so far this year. He was worth two nine last year. Uh, even if you think he's going to completely regress back to what he was a year ago, his defensive numbers are going to decline back to the point where, you know, he's a below average defensive center fielder, which has maybe, you know, that's what, this, Adam Jones is one of the issues where scouts and stats disagree defensively, so I don't know if you want to take his defensive numbers at 100% face value anyway, um, but if you think he's a bad defensive center fielder and he's going to turn back into the offensive player he was last year, then he's worth the contract. If you think he's made any leaps forward whatsoever uh, and improved at all and, you know, is maybe a better defender than UZR has suggested, uh, then he's uh, probably a four-win player, a three-and-a-half to four-win player. And at that point, if you're not willing to give a four-win 26-year-old a six-year $90 million extension, when you see what free agents are getting, you might as well just fold up your club and go home. Or go to Baltimore, I guess. Um, because it, well, we talked about this at the beginning of the season when we were um, coming up with the power rankings for this year. And, of course, we do that. Um, the methodology for our power rankings, um, we look at a you know a couple different facets. Uh, you know, it could be uh, present talent, future talent. Uh, you know, the sort of uh, financial liquidity of a club and what they're willing to spend and how much money is coming in. I think we had ranked the Orioles something like 16th or 14th last season. Uh, 15th, I believe. Yeah. 15th, right? And. We were talking about that this offseason, so what were we thinking, right? And I think that yeah. this year, Baltimore moved to 30th. 29th. 29th. I thought they were behind the I think they might have been ahead of the Astros. The Astros, are right. The Astros and Orioles were right there. And and we, we sort of consider them a distant, di, kind of distant from 28th place, I guess. They, they had their own yeah. uh, special rankings. Now, the most recent edition of the power rankings at SI.com, fueled uh, by Fangraphs War, has the Orioles now? The Orioles, their WAR-winning percentage is sixth overall. There are a bunch of teams sort of clustered there, but they look like at least to this point they've been a team that we could say is in the top third of of yeah. Major League Baseball teams in terms of the standings. Currently, the Orioles are presently 
somewhat surprisingly tied for first in the AL East. We've seen them sign Adam Jones, who is good, which is one thing is surprising in itself. The Orioles have a player like that, um, um, even though Adam Jones has been around. This version of Adam Jones has not necessarily been around. What do we know about the Orioles right now as a team? Uh, are they, are they, you know, by the end of the season, are they the fifth best team in the AL East? Because there's quite a bit of competition there. If you could say they're probably, I mean, the Red Sox are in last place. They're probably not a last place team. We would have thought the Orioles were last place, but they're actually in first place basically two months into the season. What, what can you tell us about the Orioles? Yeah, I mean, I think, you know, they're, the Orioles are one of those teams where, uh, the, uh, opinion of their talent level has probably moved too much on a year-to-year basis based on their overall record. So a couple of years ago, there was probably a little too much optimism surrounding the fact that they had, you know, Zach Britton and Brian Mattis, and there was this good young pitching coming, and there was a lot of hope about uh, what the organization could be, and, you know, that probably press was a, a, was a large factor in the Orioles ranking too highly a couple of years ago uh, when we came in at 15. Last year, all those pitchers fell apart, and you know they were horrible. And the the Orioles' young pitching uh, took dramatic steps back, and uh, you know they fell to 29th. So, what, were they ever the 15th, you know, best organization or the 29th best organization? Probably not. They've probably been in the you know mid 20s the last couple of years, and the the perception of their talent level has moved uh, most likely too much due to recent performance. And I think that's just part of human nature is we we like to overreact to human to recent performance. So, um, are the Orioles now a top? 15, top 12 team because of what they've done the first two months of the season, uh, again, I would say probably not. I mean, yes, they've talked about it Jones. That certainly helps. Uh, they've gotten some steps forward from Brian Mattis uh, and Jake Arrieta, who stabilized their pitching, but you're also looking at Jason Hamill and Wei Yin Chen pitching in a way that is almost certainly over their heads, and their bullpen has been uh, unbelievably good in a way that hardly any bullpen could keep up. So um, I don't think the Orioles are likely to continue winning, you know, more than half their games going forward. Can they be a 500 team the rest of the way in that division? That's still a really tall order. I still think that they're probably battling the Blue Jays for fourth place uh, at the end of the year. And certainly their their strong start will help them have a better record than we might have anticipated. Uh, but, I, uh, you know, unfortunately for Baltimore fans, I don't think they're legitimate contenders this year. Now, here's a question. Uh, you, you mentioned the division. Do you think that the division in which they play, the AL least has made has contributed to the difficulty of assessing the strength of that franchise relative to the other 29. Uh, absolutely. I mean, I think that you know, understanding what a player can do in the NL East or the AL East versus any other division is you know a significant challenge. Hiroki Kuroda was a really good pitcher for the Dodgers for a long time, and he's been a pretty mediocre pitcher for the Yankees this year. Part of that might be age. Part of that might be division competition facing the DH. It's really hard to separate out. And we, you know, Kuroda is certainly not the only example of a player we've seen come to the AL East uh, from another division and fall on his face or, you know, be significantly less than what he was in another division. We've seen players go the other way and get significantly better. Uh, this isn't the kind of thing that's extremely easy to measure, uh, but I don't think there's any question that the quality of competition in the American League East is higher than it is anywhere else in baseball. And so when we see a guy like Brian Mattis struggling with home run rates, uh, it could certainly be that Brian Mattis is doing something wrong, or he could just be facing some really good lineups, or at least significantly better lineups than most other pitchers are facing on a regular basis. Right, and then maybe if we put him in, for example, the NL West, uh, you know, between the quality of the offenses there and the size of most of the ballparks, uh, we could assume that he would be cosmetically better. 
Right. I mean, I think the, there's no question that, you know, the ballparks in the American League East are more hitter-friendly than they are in most divisions. The quality of hitting in the American League East is better than it is in most divisions. Um, and so you're, if you're a pitcher in that division and you've got a combination of, you know, good good offenses and small ballparks, uh, you know, maybe we should know the reactive home run rates. And then James Shields, I think, is a guy who you take him out of Tampa Bay and you put him, you know, in the National League or even in the American League West, he probably doesn't have a significantly uh, uh, large of a home run problem that he has throughout his career, and maybe he's viewed as more of a top ten pitcher than he is. Uh, one thing that happened, I guess this was on Memorial Day when I was uh, preparing the uh, the daily notes. Um, I I found that uh, according to Nerd, or the Nerd Game Scores, which are the uh, this is the thing that you tolerate, you and Appleman tolerate me playing around with, but essentially. Uh, the idea is to attempt to guess at the aesthetic appeal of a, of a game. And I find that typically, you know, if you sort of look, look at the numbers grouped broadly, it makes sense. Um, but yesterday, it sort of seemed like the first day in which the game scores were affected by uh, the context of the season. Um, because the best game out in, in uh, a raw way was, uh, it came out to be the Houston Astros and Colorado Rockies. Now, right. Houston Astros have been an interesting story, and they play in a division that's probably a little bit more competitive than we would have expected, or even than we would expect currently, seeing as the Cardinals are not in first place, and yet they seem to be decidedly one of the top two teams in the majors right now, top three at least. Uh, the Rockies, there's really not a lot you could say about them. Uh, the offense is not necessarily terrible. The pitching has been pretty bad. Um and so I looked at that game, and I thought, this should probably not be the featured game of the day. Even though Alex White has been interesting, Jordan Lyles maybe has some redeeming qualities, but there's some other games that feature teams uh, that are actually playing for something and will continue to play for something. For example, the surprising New York Mets were facing the Phillies. And, for example, uh, the Red Sox and Tigers were playing each other. And uh, those teams... Have probably are playing, uh, they have a little bit more at stake. Um, so I took, I was looking at cool standings and their playoff, uh, their playoff odds, and I noticed that some teams uh, just are already not even, they're not contending for anything anymore. For example, the Twins have less than a 1% chance of making the playoffs. The Cubs and the Padres, and of course the Cubs and the Padres were actually playing each other which made that game difficult to watch, one assumes. Uh, so th- this is a thing? I mean, is this a thing? And, and I, I feel naive asking it, but it's possible that a team is just um, not in – they have no hopes of the playoffs less than two months into the season. Yeah. I mean, I think that, you know, you look at the Twins, and it's hard to imagine that this team could even play 500 ball the rest of the way. They're pitching in as bad a shape as it is. Even with Joe Bauer and Justin Morneau having pretty decent seasons – there are just so many problems with that lineup and that pitching staff especially that it's like really difficult to even squint and imagine that the Twins could be possible playing you know, 500 ball the rest of the way, and they're already 16 games under 500. So for them to finish with you know 85-plus wins, which is the absolute bare minimum you would need to even consider a team to be in the hunt for a wild-card berth, uh, you know, you're probably looking at 87-88 more realistically. For a team that starts 16-32 and 32, uh, and isn't – just an underachieving bunch. I mean, the Twins maybe aren't this bad, but they're also not not great, and they've already dug themselves a significant hole. Uh, it's really next to impossible to see the Twins or the Cubs or the Padres 
turning the season around and saying, you know what, two months was a small sample. Look at we're really good for four months because they would have to play 750 baseball the rest of the way to run down a good team, and that's just not going to happen. So, does that distribution make sense to you? I mean, about two months into the season, to have three teams that are just completely out of it. Yeah, I mean, I think that that's probably about right. I think you could look at the the Cubs and the Padres and the Twins, and of those three teams going in, we wouldn't have assumed that their playoff odds were significantly uh, higher than that even preseason. I mean, you know, maybe you thought the Twins could rebound. Uh, if Francisco Liriano got his velocity back and had a breakout year. I mean, maybe you could squint and see the Twins as a surprise contender in the American League Central, but we knew the Cubs and Padres were going to be bad. Uh, and, you know, the Twins since it had a lot of things go wrong that they needed to go right. So to look at these three franchises and say they're out of the race, uh, you know, at this point in the season, it's not too surprising. Um, and, and another thing that's happening bizarrely is that the somehow the Pittsburgh Pirates um, – whom uh, Bradley Woodrum wrote about the other day as having a colossally, I mean, having a disastrous offensive season. They're having Uh, the worst offensive season in the history of the game. Okay. Meanwhile, the St. Louis Cardinals are having, I think, literally one of the best seasons thus far. Yeah. Uh, The best offensive seasons, of course, relative to run environment, present run environment. Those two teams are somehow only separated by two and a half games as we speak in the in the NL Central. It's amazing. I think like the Pirates being at 500 with a team WRC plus of 66 is perhaps the unheralded story of the year. I mean, like this, if you look at the record of other teams that have posted a WRC plus of 70 or less in a full season, they almost universally lost, uh, you know, 95, 100, 110 games in a year. Uh, because with an offense that bad, you just can't win regularly. And I mean, there's just, you know, the, the regression is coming in Pittsburgh. They're either going to start scoring a lot more runs or they're going to start winning a lot fewer games because there's just no way they can maintain a 500 pace with an all-time worst offense. Right, and we should note, now I, I believe, uh, if I'm not mistaken, the, the, Pirates, uh, the Pirates Stadium, PNC, is pitcher friendly, not the most pitcher yep. friendly in the league, but skews pitcher friendly. But yep. we're talking about we're talking about league and park adjusted numbers. Yeah, I mean, you know, you can look at the splits if you want. The Pirates are the worst hitting team on the road as well. I mean, the Pirates are. <laughs> uh, it, it's not a, it's not just a park factor. Like uh, I think the Pirates are actually hitting slightly better at home than they are on the road. Uh, they're the second worst hitting team at home. I think the Mariners are slightly worse than them. But uh, on the road, the Pittsburgh's just as bad as they are, uh, or even slightly worse than they are when they're playing in PNC. Uh, the park is holding down their uh, offensive levels a little bit, but, you know, WRC Plus adjusts for that to some degree, at least as best as we can with current park factors. Um, and, you know, I think it's it's undeniable to say that the Pirates' offense has been absolutely atrocious, especially considering they have Andrew McCutcheon, who's having a really good year. So the other eight guys have been especially terrible, uh, and yet the Pirates are still at 500, which I think speaks to the quality of pitching that they've gotten, and to some extent the uh, uh, flaws in evaluating a team with win- by using win-loss record in- over a couple of months. I mean, this is something we see especially with the Cardinals, who you know the record is not all that impressive, but when you begin to look at the components, they they should be several, you know, three, four, five wins better than they are. Uh, they just have lost a lot of one-run games. I think the, the Cardinals are three and eight in one-run games so far. So, you know, if you even out that three and eight to a five and six or a, even a six and five, uh, you know, that all of a sudden their record gets a, a lot better in a hurry simply because of, you know, uh, 
very small blips. I mean, you know, a one-run game could be turned on a bad call by an umpire or a ball going foul into the fair or, you know, uh, a hitter swinging at a pitch and, you know, getting a little blooper that falls in that ends the game. I mean, one-run victories are have very little predictive value whatsoever. Yeah, in fact, that that's that's the thing I find probably most confounding while watching, uh, you know, television broadcasts of games is you almost always see a record in one-run games or a or a batter's uh, his performance with runners in scoring position, you almost always see this portrayed as a as a virtue. Yeah. Um, when it's when when really you know in reality it's actually like a harbinger of doom, um, because yeah. um, if you say oh like look how well this team has done with runners in scoring position, it's like yes now we know that they will in the future be scoring fewer runs uh, because they will right. most likely not be able to take advantage of those situations. And the same thing with with um, you know, championing a team's ability in one-run games. Um, you know, typically we know, like, now, of course, there might be some control of it if a team has a, a very good bullpen, um, um, but, or, or maybe a certain type of offense, we could say, but generally speaking, a team doesn't have a lot of control over that. If they're winning a lot of one-run games, essentially by championing that, you're actually, uh, you're noting that they will do, they will be playing more poorly in the future. Yeah, I mean, I think it was, like, I think it was last week, the Yankee beat writers were all turning themselves in knots talking about how the Yankees could not hit in the clutch. And they were, you know, so demonstrably worse with runners in scoring position than they were in the bases empty. And this spoke to character flaws and a bad roster composition. And this is, I think, when the Yankees were around 500. And, you know, the offense was just not as good as people thought it was going to be. And Alex Rodriguez and Mark Teixeira were overpaid bums. And, uh, you know, their their performance of runners in scoring position was a symptom of a serious problem. And then all of a sudden, uh, that stops holding true. And the the flip switched, and Mark Teixeira starts hitting like a monster. And the Yankees have won a whole bunch of games and are back in contention. And those stories all seem relevant like four or five days later. Yeah. Mark Teixeira started hitting like a monster, but he's looked like a monster for a lot longer than that. Uh, yeah, but his, his mother listens to the podcast, so you might want to stop talking now. Oh, is that true, actually? No. no I, it was a fun thing to threaten you with. Yeah, no, I, um, and I don't know why I would be afraid of his mother, generally speaking. I mean, <laughs> true. A mild-mannered woman, I'm sure. Um, well, all right. Uh, hey, that sounds like a podcast. Um, do you have anything that you that you need or want to add, Dave Cameron? Uh, you know, I think anything that I need to add, I can hold for another seven days. Or six days, actually, because we're recording this on a Tuesday. We are recording this on a Tuesday. Now, indeed, uh, all right, well, then I will, uh, first of all, thank you. Uh, second of all, invite you to some adult conversation immediately following the conclusion of our recording here. And then, uh, thirdly, say, um, bid you adieu. I'll bid you adieu. Adieu to you. Yeah, all right. That is, uh, that is Dave Cameron. I am and will continue to be. Carson Zestuli, and this has been another edition of Fangraphs Audio.